Welcome to the Now You Know Akron podcast, brought to you by the journalists of BeaconJournal.com. Each week, they will share their expertise on Akron and Summit County. Now, here's your host, Craig Webb. Thanks for joining us for the Now You Know Akron podcast. I'm your host, Craig Webb. Today, we'll be taking a look at COVID-19 and the Delta variant. We'll be joined by Dr. Rob McGregor, who is the Chief Medical Officer at Akron Children's Hospital, along with Betty Lynn Fisher, our medical reporter at the Beacon Journal, where we will discuss the virus's impact on local hospitals as cases rise. But first, here's three things you should know from recent headlines from BeaconJournal.com. The murder trial of the man accused of killing more people in Summit County history has begun. Our reporter, Stephanie Warsmith, is covering the trial of Stanley Ford, which has begun in Summit County Common Pleas Court. Ford stands charged of killing nine people in arson deaths, and this trial is expected to last several weeks. Jurors have already visited the Shermbondi Hills neighborhood in Akron, where the fires happened. Our reporter, Alan Ashworth, has unwound an unusual story out of Barberton involving Barberton City Councilman Sean Rocky Jabber. He claims that he has been followed, perhaps, by a private investigator who has also investigated his whereabouts in the city by meeting with acquaintances. In this story, Alan talked to the councilman, who said he also found a tracking device placed on his private vehicle. An iconic Akron business has a new owner, Bob's Hamburg has been purchased by Chad Murphy and Alicia Kennedy of Stray Dog, who plan to continue the tradition of offering Bob's signature hamburgs at its original location and also in Highland Square, where they have a second location, inside of Ray's Pub. BeaconJournal.com and all of our apps always feature updated headlines and subscriber-exclusive content you can't find anywhere else. Our spotlight topic for today's podcast is COVID-19 and the recent rise in cases as a result of the Delta variant. We're joined by Dr. Rob McGregor, the Chief Medical Officer at Akron Children's Hospital, and also Betty Lynn Fisher. She is our medical reporter who's done an outstanding job covering this pandemic. So, so welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I guess I'll start and we'll just have a conversation, and hopefully Betty is far more an expert on this topic than I am. I, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, just kind of, kind of think about it. I, I was, and I can't remember who said it, it might have been someone from the CDC with, with the Delta variant saying that this is almost like a, a second pandemic, that, that this is really, I don't want to say game changers, that, that sounds kind of contrite, but I, I just wonder what, what, what your thoughts. I mean, is, is the Delta variant in, a, in Ohio, is it really almost like a second pandemic? Well, certainly among the children's hospitals, I was just sharing with Betty Lynn that the Ohio Children's Hospital Association, we have a network of the, the preceding children's hospitals along with, with Rainbow, and we meet weekly, and all all of us have been seeing uh, an increased number of kids requiring hospitalization and intensive care this time. And before many of the kids that were in the hospital with COVID happened to have COVID when they came in to get tested before they went to the operating room and really were not that symptomatic. Now we're seeing an increased number of kids that are coming in symptomatic, and we're seeing an increased positivity rate among kids who come in with respiratory symptoms. Again, not all so sick, but the kids that have uh, respiratory symptoms were up above 8.5% 
uh, positivity rate, which is much higher than we had back in the winter last year. So in, in a way, are, I want to say lucky because that's probably not for those who really got sick and, and obviously lost somebody in the first in the early days. I mean, were we just fortunate the first round? I mean, that, that, that because of masking, because of aggressive stay at home orders and school closings. I mean, it's, it's easy in hindsight to look back. Right. But but was that aggressiveness help prevent where we're headed today? I think we learned in retrospect, that masking, distancing, and hand hygiene really were the only tools we had that were worth, worth, you know, prevention. Now that we add vaccination, and while the children, you know, under 12 can't be vaccinated yet, everybody else can be, and hopefully will be, so that we can prevent that. But so I think what we're seeing now, Craig, is people have either through fatigue or letting down their guard because we did go even in the hospital. We went several weeks with one or two patients a day, and now we're back up to nine today, which uh, I think Betty Lynn's been running our numbers. I know I've been sending them to her every day, but, uh, she, you know, we, we were post the holidays uh, in January. We had numbers that were in the low teens, uh, but we haven't been anywhere close to this uh, really since since that time period. So I think what we're seeing is the Delta variant is much more contagious. It tends to make the kids sicker faster. They don't tend to just hang out. Uh, if they're going to get sicker, they get sicker. Um, and I think that we have, uh, at least in the areas of the country that have low vaccination rates, they're finding the highest incidence of kids getting hospitalized and being on ventilators. And that's many of the states that you're probably well aware of, Florida and uh, uh, Mississippi and Texas. So it correlates with the fact that if you have a higher number of people in the population that are easily susceptible, you're going to have that virus spread and spread and spread. And that's going to include the kids. Now, what's not clear to me yet is, is there something unique to this Delta variant that makes kids sicker? Or does it just make more kids sick so that we get to see the complications that are relatively infrequent? But since the number of people sick is so high, those kids are coming to the surface. Well, there's lots to unpack here, but, but Betty, I, I kind of want to bring you in the conversation. And, and you know, for the Beacon Journal, you're kind of our, our point person. And, and I mean, what are you hearing from parents now? I mean, maybe they contact you. Maybe anecdotally what you're, you're hearing is, is as he said, is it fatigue? Are, are people starting, are parents starting to get a little more nervous again? Are we kind of, you know, becoming believers? You know, I think there's such, such a wide range. I mean, you know, you've, we've, we've written about it. We've seen the news reports. Um, you know, there is such a wide spectrum of parents who, um, don't want their kids masked, um, and parents who do. And, you know, it's become this, you know, this major thing in schools and, and we're even seeing, in, you know, just in the last week or so, um, as some schools have started uh, and said they were mask optional, you know, a lot of school boards have changed, um, uh, you know, once they've started seeing quarantining and isolation. So, Dr. McGregor, I think I'm going to actually, you know, throw it throw it to you. You know, you and I have talked about uh, the, the concerns for K through 12 masking. And you have said that, you know, you know, you do believe that masking is is the right way to go to protect kids. Um, but, you know, do you what are you seeing? Um, in terms of, you know, we do know that, in fact, uh, we have been looking at those numbers. Uh, we've been compiling them for the Beacon since November 30th. And, you know, we did hit zero a couple times at Akron Children's in early July. 
Um, and we were looking for the other hospitals to hit zero. That's how that's how close we were to zero around here. We were a low of 12 among the four major hospitals um, and a high of 318 um, in mid-December. And now we're back up to just to give you kind of the latest. It's about uh, 10, 106 um, is the total for the four hospital systems. But, um, you know, are you able to, you know, have you checked with your your primary care offices to see like anecdotally, um, again, not talking about the sickest kids who are have COVID in, in the hospital. We know there are nine of them, but we also know there's a lot of cases of kids, especially now that school is in. You know, are you seeing, you know, are your are your pediatricians seeing an uptick and what are we seeing in terms of cases? Is it asymptomatic? Is it mild or are they getting more severe cases? It's That's a great question. What we're seeing in the primary care network is kids who are symptomatic but not especially ill are having a higher positivity rate. So that 8% or 8.5% includes those kids who come in with a new cough, cold, runny nose, fever that gets screened. So again, the majority are not COVID because we're seeing so much of the other respiratory viruses right now. The the typical wintertime viruses uh, that are happening in in, in August. Uh, I know several of the educators on the phone this morning said we're going to have to retrain residents to understand what the seasonality is of these diseases because they're not following the rules right now. So people are going to have a real skewed experience with that. But so we are seeing that in our primary care network, we're seeing it in our urgent care and in our emergency room. We're seeing a, a increased number of people coming because of respiratory symptoms and several of them are, are positive. Can you tell we us? We have had some school districts that started, though, Betty, Lynn, like you said, they started with masks optional and after a week of being in class, they had either so many faculty missing or so many students missing that they've reversed it. I know Norwalk, um, the area out in that region, changed their, their policy. I know even in the, um, the school district closest to me at home is, is uh, Hudson, and their school board reversed their decision. The schools that have gone through optional masks have really found it really challenging because, especially when you talk about middle school, you know, peer pressure is huge. So if, you're, if my kid's the only one that's wearing a mask, they're not going to keep their mask on very long. And I know anecdotally from my colleagues who have high school kids in in Hudson, they said, yeah, once we decided it was mandated, everybody wears it. It's not a big deal. The kids aren't making it a big deal. So I wish the rest of us could relax and not make it a big deal and just do the things that are preventative until we get that critical mass of vaccinated population so that we're not spreading this. Yeah, we talked a little bit before. And by the way, it's just Betty. Lots of people think it's Betty Lynn. Just Betty. Uh, okay, Lynn. Betty. Sorry. <laughs> That's OK. Um, so, um, you know, we were talking a little before before we started this recording about, the you know, some of the reasons perhaps that RSV, which normally does show up in the winter, is showing up here in the summer. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. We, we classically see a peak with children under 12 months of age every winter. And that's uninfected, unexposed babies are now getting exposed to either older siblings or parents that just think they have a cold and it turns out to be the RSV virus. So I think what we saw was a buffer that the mask provided last year so that we had lots of people not get infected. And as you mentioned, there's been some speculation that if moms get a URI during pregnancy and get RSV 
they may be giving some passive antibodies to their newborns so that uh, at least for the first six weeks or a uh, few months, the little ones are relatively protected. And, you know, we don't, we didn't have that for the last, you know, so, well, the last three months we have had it, but uh, before that we didn't. So we probably have a combination of a, of a whole extra year of kids that didn't get exposed when they normally would have. And so we're seeing an increased numbers numbers of toddlers admitted to the hospital with RSV, where it usually would be infants. And URI is what? Upper respiratory? Upper upper respiratory infection. Sorry. I think it's interesting. My wife and I, we have five kids, and and three are adolescent and grown, but we still have a high schooler and a middle schooler. We said, you know, last year might have been the the first year as parents, and, and oldest is 25, that we did not have a case of strep in our house. And, and I guess it's masking. I guess it was the aggressive hand washing and, but, but, you know, and it, it's just interesting that, you know, I, I'm not a scientist, but that's my anecdotal, uh, you know, and, and we, we had an interesting situation. We had a kid who, we have a middle schooler who goes to a private school where it started, they have masks. His masks were mandatory out of the gate. And we have a high schooler who goes to a large high school, Medina. And, and I said, well, how many kids are wearing masks? And he said, there's like two guys, two people. And then, as it, it went on, suddenly all the sports teams were wearing masks because there were cases in the high school and the coach was saying, you know, we're not going to lose our season. And kind of that peer pressure you're saying that all these athletes were suddenly, if you were played sports at Medina, you were wearing a mask. And, and now the masks have become more more common. And so there there is something to be said for, right, the peer pressure. So long as we have the peer pressure doing the right thing and <laughs> not, not making them shun their masks because, uh, but I think, you know, having the, the athletes are often role models in the school for good or for bad or, you know, I think athlete, athlete, athletics are really an important part of, of acculturation and growing up. Uh, so if they can lead the way, I'm all behind them. So I guess on the, on the subject of athletes, I, I guess that's always kind of the argument with, with masks and no mask is, all right, so you wear a mask in the classroom, but yet we'll, we'll throw you out in a football field or we will throw you in a basketball court or we'll throw you in a cross-country match. We're all lined up together. I mean, what's what's the rationale? I mean, an indoor versus outdoor and athletes, I mean, it certainly seems like you're breathing pretty heavy if you're playing football, right? Well, it's indoor versus outdoors, and it's amount of time that you're in that close proximity. And again, will it be different with the Delta variant? Maybe. Uh, maybe it doesn't take as big of an oculum. But at least in the first two waves, we know that if you were face-to-face with somebody for less than 15 minutes, even if they got COVID, you had a pretty good chance that you were going to get by without getting it. So there seemed to be a critical time period. And that's why uh, eating together without masks was always, a, was always a challenge. And we found that with employees. We found that with, with students. That, you know, you're clustered in the cafeteria, you start telling jokes, you laugh, you, you know, you really probably have a lot more activity as opposed to that episodic, I'm out of breath from that play. And then the next play snapped and, and you're moving and, and you're going in different directions. We saw that even with the NFL and with, with college football last year, that despite the fact that those linebackers are right up against each other, uh, there wasn't as much transmission in games as there was in the weight training room or in the other parts of uh, the the para-athletic activities. What's your thoughts on where we're at? Are we 
are we at the top of the mountain or are we still climbing the mountain in terms of cases? I mean, it's, you know, obviously you're not Nostradamus. And if you were, you would uh, probably be on Wall Street or something not talking to us. But what's your what's your thoughts on, on where we are right now? I think we're still climbing the mountain, unfortunately, because we're seeing these spikes in all the children's hospitals in Ohio right now. And school hasn't started in many of them. So what my hope would be is that the school districts that have been more lenient about masks optional will learn from the schools that have already shut down till after Labor Day because they had a flare and not even start that way. I mean, I don't want us to fail fast. If we're going to, if we're going to do that exercise and we're going to fail, I'd rather we fail fast and let everybody get sick. But I would hope that we would learn from the natural history in the other areas of the, of the country and just avoid that step. I don't want to use our children as the, uh, the marker for the, oh, this is serious. I wish we hadn't uh, let her let that our guard. Can we go back to mask wearing? So, you know, some people have said, well, should I wear an N95 mask? Should I wear a surgical mask? Should I wear a cloth mask? Um, I've heard one um, physician say the best mask for a child is the one that they will keep on and keep over their nose and their mouth. I, I think that's that's important. I mean, if it's colorful and it's fun or it, it matches their outfit and they're going to keep it on, then it can be a fashion statement. That's fine. I mean, I think that we, we learned, at least in the, in the hospital setting, we used the surgical mask and we really had very nice success, even in people that worked in pretty close proximity because of their, you know, they work along the cafeteria where you really, there's not a whole lot of ways to have six feet between people that work there, but we really had very little person to person transmissibility. So, you know, an N95, I will confess when I fly, I fly with an N95. I've only flown twice since the pandemic uh, has, was easing off, but I feel that that may be a little better. I don't think it's that much better, maybe more psychological. And I feel like I'm setting an example, but, um, but I, again, whatever a child will keep on, if they think it's cool, it fits, it's comfortable. That's yeah, one more barrier, but you still don't want to stop the relative distancing and the hand hygiene. I think you hit the nail on the head, Craig, when you talked about the fact that you didn't see strep in your household and, and I, that may be anecdotal for you, but that's really what we've seen uh, across the country. And we, we really the, the number of kids who were referred for for tubes uh, during the masking period went way down. And that's, again, because they didn't have those incidental infections that made their middle ear function not quite normal. I'm not sure who makes amoxicillin, but maybe their stocks went down. I'm not sure. But uh, and the fact that I even know that it's amoxicillin tells you uh, perhaps maybe a little. But uh, So it's interesting. But what, what do you say to those parents who, who say that it's stunning my child's growth? It's it's going to traumatize them. I mean, we, we've even heard, and I think Betty uh, said the other day, that it's going to deform my child's ears with the mask wearing. I mean, what's your – I don't know. Yeah, you know help, help me with that. Well, you can do a lot of tricks with masks to make them not bend your ears forward. Uh, and I, again, are they wearing it 24 seven? I think that their ears will recover when they get home from school if they're not wearing masks. But again, I would make it successful, set them up to, to succeed. So if you need a, to put new elastic on the, the cloth mask so that your kids ears aren't being pulled forward, do it. I don't have any problem with you altering it like that. 
But to just write it off when we know that it works is, is very hard. Uh, I would much, much rather have, you know, my kids are grown, but my grandkids, I'd rather have them have a little, uh, little, little ear problems, uh, pulling their ear forward than having them be in an intensive care unit. And we have one child in intensive care right now on, on ECMO, which is basically bypass because they failed conventional ven- ventilation. Um, so you know, that's sobering. Again, if it's not that common, it's fine. But if it's your kid or your grandkid, it's 100 percent. Why are you talking about treatment methods? I mean, you, you said you have one child in ICU. Do you, you think we've gotten better at treating these children who, who come into children's and our various hospitals? I mean, do we know more about this virus now? We're, we're a lot smarter than we were last year. Uh, we really have come a long way. We know some things that that we thought worked that didn't really work. We know definitely that uh, you know, there are some recipes that that work, and we have some standardized protocols that we've started adopting across the country and certainly across the state of Ohio. But it's not a it's not a panacea. Uh, you know, everybody does not respond to the monoclonal antibodies if they. You know, we've used that for some of our transplant population. They get exposed. They're not real sick. We give them the monoclonal antibodies. Many of them respond, but not all of them respond. And I just want to caution folks that think, oh, well, if there's a rescue drug uh, or if there's an effective treatment, that's what that's what parents have said to me. Well, if there's an effective treatment, I'll just get it, and then you give me the monoclonal antibodies. I said, well, it's much more effective for you not to get that monoclonal antibodies, get the vaccine. That's our best defense. And, you know, the monoclonal antibodies aren't something that you normally put in your body. So if we're going to change it up. Let's use where the science shows us the biggest bang is, and that would be with a vaccine. And when do you think we'll be vaccinating those 12 and under? I mean, you think that's going to be soon? And, and, are you're, and you're comfortable? Are you comfortable with the younger vaccinations? I am, I am comfortable. I, I know that both Pfizer and Moderna came out. Uh, about uh, four weeks ago and said, we really want to have more kids in your trials. So they both had to expand the number of kids they put in their trial because they were pretty much ready to go to market. Um, but an abundance of caution, I, I get it. Um, I, I think the fact that we've given it to you know, a fair number of children already in the trials uh, and have not seen any of the un- untoward side effects other than in the, in the Teenagers, we had some children that had some uh, heart dysfunction, you know, after after the vaccine, and they all responded very nicely to treatment with uh, with steroids and uh, supportive care. Uh, I'm not aware of any of the adolescents that did get the vaccine and had that complication go on to have permanent problems, but I am aware of people who got heart involvement with their primary COVID that still have some problems, even though the COVID is gone. Dr. McGregor, has there been any discussion? Because, again, you know, it's not approved yet for those under 12. And a lot of the, the infants, there's usually a course of when they get their immunizations, you know, until age two. Uh, you know, is there has there been discussion of when, you know, when or if this does get approved, how young will they be able to be to get the vaccine? I, I've heard that some of the studies from uh, – one of the one of the companies, and I want to say it's Moderna, but don't quote me on that, uh, is it goes down as slow as six months. So I don't think people will get it before six months. But again, I think this is a case where 
if I'm thinking about, uh, if, if I'm a woman of childbearing years, I want to be vaccinated when I get pregnant because then I think I'm, you know, abiding by two weeks after my second vaccine, I'll be maximally protected and I will pass some of those antibodies over. So just like we don't see RSV usually in the, if a mom has had RSV, we don't really see it in those first several months of life because there is passive immunity and that's what monoclonal antibodies effectively are, passive immunity. Um, so I, I, I do think that um, I, I would certainly advocate again, my, I have a daughter who full disclosure is an OB um, she was pregnant before the vaccine was available and she got it soon after delivery and has breastfed. And she, you know, the, the ACOG, the uh, OBGYN kind of governing body and the maternal fetal medicine governing body, you have all said, get ahead of it, get your vaccine while you're pregnant so that you can give some protection and you're not going to be the mom that's positive when your newborn's born and then they have to go into isolation until we prove the newborn didn't get it. Well, I think it's certainly been a good discussion. I, I guess one, one last question might, might be, and I, I, you, I don't want to give away your age, but you just say you have a daughter, who's, so you're, you're now grandpa. But did you ever think that, that in your profession, and you know, as reporters, we're, we're kind of always been a little, I want to say political, because we're not political, but, but our, our, our nature of our businesses, did you ever think that you'd see your profession just be, just such rancor and, and science being questioned and, and just really just the angry and just visceral anger that there is over even masking and just this whole topic. Yeah, it's I, I never thought I would see it to answer your question, Craig. It's it's disappointing to me. I understand how emotions are high. But it's, you know, the, the concerns, there's so much rancor <laughs> and, you know, I, I know folks that are otherwise Pretty rational thinkers have just closed their mind to the possibility that that there is science, and and we've got good studies, we've got good evidence that it makes a difference. And even now, when we see people that get infected, and you can get infected with the Delta variant if you're already vaccinated, but we're not seeing those patients ending up in our ICU. You know, I'd say probably 80%, at least my friends in adult medicine. They say that 80% of the patients that end up in the ICU are, are unvaccinated people that got it, even though the number of people, number of our own employees that have gotten COVID in the last week was predominantly vaccinated people, but they didn't end up in the units. And that's what we're looking at now. We, we know that the vaccine doesn't protect you 100% of the time, but it does seem to protect you 100% of the time for the serious outcomes. And we've got to stay ahead of that. I guess I have one last question as just as a, as a wrap up. You, you kind of mentioned it here earlier, but especially for those kids that are under 12 that can't get vaccinated and then, you know, just globally for kids K through 12, you know, can you just kind of go over, you know, what your, what your tips are for, you know, protecting those kids? Well, I think the one that's not mentioned, well, it's mentioned, it's not mentioned as the primary uh, tip is get the adults around them vaccinated. And then have everyone masked, whether you're vaccinated or not, in a school setting, in a, in a communal setting where you don't know who you don't know, just to err on the side of masking. I do hope that in the early fall that we will have at least uh, the 8 to 12 or 6 to 12 year olds vaccinated or being eligible for a vaccination. So that that'll be good. But again, we saw early on with the older adolescents, we only had a 20 percent uptick right away. And I imagine those numbers would be probably pretty similar 
ones that's available for the, for the younger children. So hand hygiene, masking, socially distance when you're indoors, and then let them run when they're outside. And no video games. Oh, I, maybe that's another podcast <laughs> I mean, for another. The, the you is, in the house. No, no YouTube. But. You, use it as a positive reinforcement if they wore their mask all day. <laughs> yes. Over the rise. Well, thank you both for this great discussion, Dr. McGregor and, and Betty. So and thanks again. All right. Thanks. Stay well. That's all we have today for the Now You Know Akron podcast. Be sure to join us again next week. Episodes are released every Wednesday wherever you download your favorite podcasts and are also available on BeaconJournal.com and all our various apps. Before we go, we have to give a thank you to our producer, BJ Lisko. Without him, this wouldn't be possible. Seriously, this would not be possible. And we urge you to support local journalism by becoming a subscriber. If you're already signed up, you have my heartfelt thanks. Until next week, now you know Akron.